Well, we're uh, continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. Let me make sure this is on. Nope. Continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. And I hope after last week um, you were challenged by the things that, that were said because they're so applicable um, to us. All the scripture is applicable, but some passages are pretty easy um, when it comes to finding uh, loads of information and loads of ways that it applies to our lives. Um, and so we're going through the, the, the love letter, as people might call it, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we, we looked in two weeks ago in verses 1 through 3, uh, looking at the rebukes of uh, Paul, basing, basically confronting the Corinthians on their lack of love uh, in comparison to or in, in regards to the use of spiritual gifts. And so Paul takes a moment to define for us uh, really a, a beautiful picture of, of divine love. And we might ask the question, how can we have divine love? And the answer is, without God giving it to us, without Him gifting divine love and really uh, allowing it to indwell within us because of the Holy Spirit, we would not have divine love. We would have a, a misunderstanding of love. We would love for all the selfish reasons that you can imagine. But because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we have been engrafted into us a divine love that operates uh, based upon the characteristics of God that is manifested in us through His Spirit. And so last week, uh, when we went through the list of, of love aspects or details, we looked at three. We looked at love and its long-suffering effects, that we as people will be long-suffering um, in difficulty, uh, whether that be circumstantial or even with our enemies, people that are, our, uh, are, are in conflict with us. We will long-suffer with them. And we talked about how that was a, a defensive position, because in, in long-suffering, we are putting to death uh, the way in which our flesh wants to respond to difficulties, okay? And, and the, the, the defensive position is long-suffering, and the positive or the offensive position is long-suffering with kindness. So putting on kindness is another aspect of love whereby we demonstrate help and benefit to other people. So our, not, our, our, our fleshly reaction is to be impatient, our godly reaction is to be patient with them, and instead of just being patient and quiet, we are patient and helpful and beneficial to them. That immediately, church, has a huge impact in the world. Think about it. If you are patient with the world around you and in people in the church, you are overly patient, you are divinely patient in a sense, and on top of that, you are graciously helping and showing kindness going out of your way, you are automatically doing what most of the world refuses to do. And that's how the world sees the heavenly realm, the Christ, uh, and Christ and His kingdom in us. And the last one was uh, where Paul says, love is not jealous... He basically is teaching us that love displays contentment. Those are the three we looked at last week. We are tr if we are trusting in a sovereign God, if we are trusting in the one who has uh, given us all that we have, knowing that it's all that we need, 
then therefore we can have right relationship with one another and be at peace with one another because we're not jealous with one another. We're content with what God has given us. We're content with what God has given you and therefore we can have a great relationship and we can display love. If we're jealous, it leads us to envy. It leads us to murder or it leads us to theft or it leads us to... um, uh, backbiting or gossip or slander. It is a myriad of ways that we can go all because we are not content with who God is and what he has done for us. That's why love is content. We're going to look at a couple more today. Um, uh, again, it's, it's, it's a joy for me to, to dive deep into these because they apply to every aspect of our life. There is so much to say, and we're going to spend some time on these this afternoon. The fourth one is love is humble, or as I made it a verb this week, be humble. Okay? All of these phrases, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7 are verbal forms. Therefore, their action, their present continual action, meaning that you are called in the divine love that God has given you to display a humble love. Now, where do we see that? Well, we see it in two phrases in chapter uh, 13, verse 4. Love does not brag and it is not arrogant. The arrogance is the internal attitude. The bragging is the external manifestation or fruit of being arrogant. It's the sin of pride. It's an age-old sin. It's the very sin of Adam and Eve. It's the sin of Satan who is cast out of heaven wanting to be like God or be God. That's how Adam and Eve were tempted, right? If you just eat this fruit, you will be like God. It's the very sin of pride. It's the, uh, the root of evil in a sense. The root of sin when we are not content with who we are and instead we, we are uh, misdiagnosing our own placement and position in the world. This is what arrogance is. Arrogance and pride cannot dwell in a heart that is saturated by God's love because a heart that is saturated by God's love understands that God is the king and ruler of all things. And when you have a a good understanding of that, then you understand your position below God, and therefore you won't fall into arrogance and pride. In other words, a heart of pride is an improper view of yourself and a misunderstanding of God. Pride denies a need for God. It is it, 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 it proclaims that the inner man is strong enough to do what God is needed to do in our lives. Oh, I don't need God. I can do it myself, right? You've heard the phrase, I am the master of my what? My fate. I am the captain of my what? My soul. These are atheistic, pride-infused statements that are anti-God and a a misrepresentation of the very person that is saying that. Let's look at a few examples in Scripture. Well, one particular example that reeks of pride is King Nebuchadnezzar. And we have this famous passage where King Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by the God of Israel. And here's why. Because in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30-32, through the king has a moment 
on a balcony where he's reflecting upon his own greatness. And he says, quote, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? It's a pretty profound and clear statement of pride. I continue. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like a cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows upon it whomever He wishes. It's interesting. King Nebuchadnezzar had to be reminded of his own position and the Most High's position. Pride is the exact opposite when we get those confused. One contemporary historical figure that we're familiar with, that just pops into my head when it comes to arrogance and pride, is the great or infamous Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali who said, quote, I'm the king of the world. I'm the greatest. I'm Muhammad Ali. I shook up the world. I'm the greatest. I'm the king of the world. I'm pretty. I'm a bad man. Muhammad Ali Every word that seemed to come out of that man's mouth was a braggadocious and pride-infused statement about his greatness that he did not bestow upon God, but upon himself. Even though his name reflected God's praise. Now, from a different religious context, but the very name Muhammad Ali is, is, is defined or it means God getting praise. And here he was, ironically, not giving God praise. Giving himself praise. Well, we need to be reminded that if we are going to love as God loves, as he calls us to love, we must have a proper view of God and of ourself. The scripture teaches us that God is the one who made all things as creator, and he possesses all things that he has made. Therefore, he is the creator and king. And as king rules over all his creation, and his greatest desire is for his glory, not our glory. Man is a created being, and we are therefore subjected to God's rule. And when sin entered the world and man's rebellion, the greatest offense against God was that we thought that we could be like God. And this is the gravest errors of mankind. And therefore, a great chasm separates God and man because of this. And His power and His knowledge and His wisdom and His eternality and His perfections and His holiness remind us that we will never be like God. And that same chasm of of distinction between God and man also reminds us That because He created us and made us and provides all things for us and sustains our very breath and living, we need Him. We need Him. And folks, let me just tell you right now, we don't don't forget this idea, but we need to be reminded that one day we will stand in His presence. 
We will stand in His presence and He will judge us for every prideful, arrogant thought and action that we've ever taken. And so it's easy for us at times to, to spurn God and spurn His rule and reign over us, but one day we will stand face to face and tremble before His holiness and His power. And I guarantee you in that moment, you won't want to spurn God's power. You won't want to have an arrogant thought or a prideful word in the, in the midst, in the, in the shadow of God's glory. You will be trembling before Him. Matter of fact, this is what Isaiah chapter 6 reminds us. The prophet Isaiah had this incredible vision. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, it reads, in the, in the year of King Uzziah, in his death, I saw the Lord. Isaiah was able to have a vision where he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the glorious gigantic temple in Jerusalem. Seraphim, which were angels, stood above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered his, uh, the two, he covered his face, and two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And they called out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And then Isaiah cries out in verse 5, I say to me, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See folks, when we have a clear picture of God and His greatness, we tremble in, in, in humility. Who are we to even be like Isaiah and see a glimpse of God, let alone read on the pages of Scripture about His majesty, and then somehow find in an audastic way a prideful thought or word as if we've done something great in our lives? Now you're like, Pastor, listen. Oprah and The View and all these people tell me that I need to love myself, and you're telling me the opposite, it seems like. I'm not telling you to have disrespect for yourself. I'm telling you to have a proper understanding of yourself. Nobody's telling you to disrespect yourself, mistreat yourself, but by no means should you put your place in, on the throne of heaven as if you belong there. If you even tried to sit on the throne of heaven, you would be consumed before you got miles to it because of your imperfection, because of your sin. <coughs> And so there is a, a, a clear divide, as Isaiah shows us, all the glory and the majesty and the holiness of this vision in Isaiah's life leads him just to bow in humility, confessing his sin, being reminded that he has seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But God in His rich mercy... In His richness and mercy, what does He do to provide a way for us to understand love? What does He do so that we might uh, be transformed and changed, so that we might be rescued? He provides a man for us. The God-man, Jesus Christ, His only Son. 
And He humbles that man, His only Son, who by the way steps out of the glory of heaven in humility, steps upon the earth, lives a perfect life, and yet is mistreated and treated as a criminal. The Lord Jesus shows us the humility that we are to reflect in this world by coming into this world. His very birth was a humble birth. His life exuded humility in all that He did. He continually, day by day, lived in such a way to put others before Himself. And so we understand the beautiful sacrifice of Christ going to the cross, faithfully going to die upon the cross so that we can see what was needed for us to be rescued. And so we can see a beautiful picture of humility. That we would be willing to sacrifice for others for the sake of displaying God's love. That's why Charles Wesley wrote this beautiful hymn. It's my favorite hymn. I have it on, a, on a, 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 a page framed in our kitchen. And can it be? It's been redone by hymn writers and contemporary Christian singers, but this is the best, Charles Wesley's version. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain. For, he, for me who Him to death pursued, amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? What a beautiful reminder of the love of Christ displayed for us through the death and resurrection of the eternal Son of God who came so sinners could be rescued. That's humility. That's humility. And God's not telling you to go die upon the cross so that sinners can be free. He's saying display a fraction of that humility in this world by giving Him praise and Him glory. So because we're transformed from death to life, be reminded that Jesus says if you want to follow Him, you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. Humility is the very act of denying yourself. Matter of fact, it, that phrase, deny yourself, summarizes these points that we're going to talk about today in this divine love. Because to love God is to deny yourself and the love for your own glory. That's what we want as human beings. That's the nature of sin. I want glory for myself. In what I accomplish at work, in what I accomplish for, in school, and with relationships, I want acknowledgement and praise. Gordon Fee says, quote, it's impossible to be arrogant and love at the same time. The one action wants others to think highly of oneself, whether deserving or not. The other cares for none of that, but only for the good of the community as a whole. So Paul tells us that if we're going to display a divine love, a Spirit-filled, a Spirit-driven, Christ-centered love, it's a love that starts with an, an understanding of who we are and what God has done for us. That's why Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24 reminds us, let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord 
Who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth? For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. That's our only boast. The only opportunity we have to brag is to brag on the Lord. Is to boast on what He's done. Paul writes the same thing in Galatians 6. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Church, if we boast in anything, let it be that we boast in the Lord Jesus and all that He's done. This displays a godly love. This displays a love that reflects what we understand about the gospel and the truth of His word. That was number four, be humble. Number five, be tactful. Be tactful. In 1 Corinthians verse 13, 5, he says that love does not act unbecomingly. It's kind of a difficult translation. Paul uses the same Greek word twice in, in this passage, and it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. But basically what he means is, is that love, our love for others, will not bring shame upon themselves or us. We will act in a becoming and not an unbecoming way. We will not be shameful. Paul used this term in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about fathers who were not permitting their adult daughters to marry that were ready to be married. They were acting unshamefully or unbecomingly with them. So what Paul means is, is that he is saying, as we live in this world, love can be manifested, divine love can be manifested in such a way that we operate with decency. In a becoming way, in a tactful way, in the way that we live, in the way that we speak. And oftentimes that's according to the established norms of society. And what this means then is when we are absent of God's love, we may care less about established norms of life, and we're crossing those lines of indecency or decency and respect, and we live in indecency and disrespect. I think the best way to state about being tactful is to be sensitive to society's norms, but not be a slave to it. The best illustration that I could think of was a former uh, pastor that I admired early in my ministry um, from Seattle. His name is Mark Driscoll. Mark made himself famous not for his good theology as much as how, how uh, disrespectful and how much he lacked the tact and uh, decency in the way he preached. In other words, coming from the Seattle... Uh, culture, he made it a point to be as edgy as he possibly could in his sermons. So much so that he became famous in evangelicalism for some of the sermons that he preached on intimacy and marriage, crossing tactful and decent lines to grab headlines when he didn't need to. Instead of, instead of speaking generally about marital intimacy and the, the, the pledge and the purpose and the permanency of those things, he took things too far by going into detail about how intimacy needs to happen between a man and a woman. It wasn't necessary. He crossed the line 
And for some, it grabbed their attention. He became popular. He was getting the clicks and the likes because it was different than what they had heard before, but it was too far. It wasn't needed. So to be tactful is to consider others and deny ourselves. Not crossing boundaries of decency and respect. But let me warn you about something that's a very big danger in our culture today. Because some people today will say, if you don't do these things, you disrespect me in this culture. We can respect a person as a human being and not respect or support their sin. Our culture today says, for example, that it offends people if you don't use the personal pronouns that they now classify themselves to be, right? How do we handle that as Christians? Because the arguments are two-sided. If you give in to using their personal pronouns, at the base level, you are a liar. Because you are acknowledging something in their life that is not true. It is not who they are. It's not who they were created to be. They are just now demanding that you use those personal pronouns because they have decided that they are going to uproot science and biology and now they're going to be this type of gender. On the other side of the, of the argument is, but we have to do this, why? Because we'll never reach these people with the gospel if we don't. Well, what is the church to do? If we Are we not showing kindness to them if we refuse to use their personal pronouns? Well, let me speak to you through the mouth of some, a woman I res- uh, admire. Her name is Rosario Butterfield. Rosario was a former lesbian who was literally researching a paper as a professor on gender studies to rebuke the church regarding lesbian and gay rights and such. And she was meeting with a pastor and his wife. And in that relationship with this pastor, she actually came to hear the gospel and know it and believe in Christ. And she gave up her life as a lesbian. She separated herself from her partner. And now is a champion for the cause of Christ. And she has spoken in an article about why you as Christians should not use personal pronouns and why she doesn't either. And here's what she says. Quote, The blood of Christ does not create an ally with sin that it crushes on the cross. For that stands in opposition to gospel hope. The world, the flesh, and the devil are not Christ's friends. Trans identity and Jesus are not coterminous. It's one or the other. Christians need to learn how to love their enemies, not pretend that their enemies are their friends. Christians who use the moral lens of LGBTQ personhood are not a merely, are not merely a soft presence in the enemy camp. Their malleability makes them putting in the enemy's hands. They make false converts to a counterfeit gospel that bends the knee to the fictional identity of LGBTQ. Folks, you can show kindness and love to people and still stand firm upon your conscience that is guided by the Word of God. 
You can disagree on areas, but we are called to hold fast to what God has deemed as right and good. And so therefore, when we want to display tact and and respect with people, that's fine. We should do that, but we should never be afraid to speak truth when it comes to what God has deemed as truth. Can we be gentle with that? Absolutely. But by no means should we enter into partnership with foolishness in particular to this statement. Instead, we can display a love that is tactful. We can display a love that considers the culture and the environment and we can put on decency and graciousness as long as it doesn't violate your conscience that is governed by the Lord and the Word of God. You just as much have a right to refuse personal pronouns as they have to demand them. This tactfulness comes in our words and our actions toward people. Because we represent the King of Kings and the way that we conduct ourselves in this world should not only be holy and upright, but it also should be decent and kind. Number six, kind of the apex of the love of Christ is selflessness. Paul says in verse 5 that love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. I love this passage because whenever I'm doing marital counseling, I get to the passage in Ephesians 5 where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, and the, the wives always have the elbow nudge. Oh, yeah, you remember? Love your wife, sacrificial love. And then I go, oh, yeah, but 1 Corinthians 13 says also that your love is to be selfless love. And selfless love is sacrificial love. So whether you're the husband or you're the wife, you're called to selfless love. Paul's already uh, told us these things back in the statement on Christian liberty. In chapter 10, verse 24, that we are, uh, it says, he says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. To be considerate, to be kind, to put other people's interests on display and, and, and seek to, to fulfill those interests. And so we are called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so to seek the good of your neighbor is not to seek your own glory. This displays itself then as selfless love. Displayed in Christ, do not consider the glory of heaven as something to keep Him there. But instead, as I said earlier, willing to sacrifice His own interest for the interest of others. And in His death, not only did He die upon the cross to be our substitute, bearing the wrath of God reserved for us, but He gave us His righteousness so that in God's eyes, we, He would see us as in right standing before Him. All of this surmises the love of Christ. And it's a love that we are to reflect to other people. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
So we could say then that selfless love is a love that leads to humility toward other people. It leads to tactfulness towards others. And it leads to graciousness toward others as well. We are seeking out day by day a way in which we can serve other people more than ourselves. This is the Spirit of God evident in us. Seeking to give honor where honor is due. Seeking to be a help where there is need. In other words, Christians are always seeking then to elevate others in their accomplishment and joys. And they're seeking to care for those who have burdens as well. But does this mean that we forsake ourselves as human beings? Absolutely not. Matter of fact, the Scripture tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. Matthew Henry comments on this. He says, The apostle does not mean that charity destroys all regard for self. He does not mean that the charitable man should never challenge what is his own, but utterly neglect himself and all of his interests. Charity must then uproot that principle which is wrought into our nature. But charity never seeks its own to the hurt of others or with the neglect of others. If often neglects, it often neglects its own for the sake of others, prefers their welfare and satisfaction and advantage to its own, and it ever prefers the well-being of the public, of the community, whether civic or ecclesiastical, to its private advantage. So simply put, church, is that when we are displaying selfless love, we are finding ways to serve and care for others. Knowing we already care for ourselves, we groom ourselves, we feed ourselves, we, 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 we go to the gym, we, 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 we purchase things for us. But if we are consumed with these things, then it becomes something that is an obstacle to us helping other people. And it, obst- it becomes an obstacle to us to the very mission of God that He sent us upon. How are we to go and make disciples of all nations like the early church did, fulfilling the gospel of Christ, if we are not willing to sacrifice things for our needs for the sake of others? Because that's what selfless love does, right? We give up comforts. Two or three weeks ago when, when uh, Casey and Julie were here and we're watching these videos on the screen and you're just like the kids are in awe. They're like, man, I could never live in the middle of the jungle eating some monkeys. Like sacrificial love, man. How bad do you care about the people in the Matse's tribe and across the river in the Amazon jungle? How bad do you really think uh, it will be for them that they never hear the gospel if they never respond to the truth of the gospel. Missionaries go fueled by sacrificial love. Years ago, while serving as a student pastor, we would participate in these mission trips in a, with an organization called World Changers. And we typically would re-roof a house or build a wheelchair ramp for the elderly or whatever. And countless times, we would hear the grateful homeowner say, these students paid their way to come and are working for free? That's what they would say. They were astonished by it. You paid two or $300 for a week to come and work on my house for free? It blew their mind. And guess what that did? That act of sacrificial love opened the opportunity to share the gospel. 
Their heart was open. Let me share with you some greater uh, work than any person coming and doing roof work for free on your house. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what He accomplished upon the cross. And sacrificial love isn't... It's not uh, alien to us. If you're a parent in here, parents, you understand sacrificial love. Parents give up their time and resources for the duration of the lives of their children, putting their needs in the forefront. We understand that. The difference is, is that we need to begin loving other people like we love our kids. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says that his ministry to the Thessalonian church was a parental love, a sacrificial love. Listen, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were pleased, well pleased, to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had been very dear, you had become very dear to us. That's the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Matter of fact, he's, he uses a, an interesting term there. He says that you proved to be, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother who tenderly cares for her own children. In Paul's day, there were women who were nursing women, and that was their profession. And they would nurse and care for children that were born to get the nutrients that they needed because the birth mother did not have the capabilities of doing so. This was this woman's job. She was nursing children and she cared for these children as she's providing the nutrients for children that were not her own. But Paul takes it up a level and he says, no, I care for you like a nursing mother of her own children. So imagine women, ladies, you're, you're a, you're, your profession is a nursing mother and you're seeing the sweetness of this child and, and you're seeing this child uh, grow and nourish and, and be provided for, but then you go home, you've had your own child, you're providing nutrients and feeding this child, it's very different. There's a greater love, there's a greater uh, commitment to this child of your own, you birthed this child. And Paul says, that's the kind of love that we've had for you. A sacrifice that displays the very sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. Church, that fuels missions today. How are we going to reach the world by being willing to sacrifice our needs for the sake of others? But sadly, this parental sacrifice is such a great a price that it's actually leading a generation of young couples today to not want to have kids. It's sad. Birth rates are going down the toilet. You know why? Selfishness. Inconvenience. I'd rather just get me a camper van and get me a remote job where I can just, you know, dial in every day on my internet and, and, and work from my van so I can go to the East Coast and the West Coast and the Redwoods and the Grand Canyon and I don't need to worry about the difficulties of the sacrifices that are required to have children. That's a generation motto today. And you know what it is? It's anti-God. It's anti-God because God said, do what? Be fruitful and multiply. 
So I'd love to have a camper van for me and my wife one day when all of our kids are out of the house and we can drive around. Probably never going to be afford it, uh, be able to afford it because we sacrifice for our kids like you sacrifice for yours. They get better clothes than you do. You're borrowing clothes and going to the Salvation Army, although you look wonderful tonight. <laughs> but it requires a way in which we sacrifice. It demands that we sacrifice. And so as we consider these aspects of displaying the love of God, it challenges us in our relationships. Men, how are you sacrificing for your family? I know the answer. I go to work every day. I get that. So let me add to this question. Men, how are you sacrificing for your family after work? That's the hard part, right? If we're honest. Man, I just want to go home and go to sleep. And then when I wake up, I want to be fed and I want to go back to bed. I get it. I'm tired like everybody else. And day by day, we can watch our kids' lives slip away. And you can ask parents in here today that their kids are grown, and they'll probably tell you that they do things different. They might say that they would have changed some things Ladies, as well, how are we sacrificing to reach the lost? It's even unimaginable for me to challenge the ladies in our church because I know how much you give to your families and I know how much you give to ministry. But it's a viable question because we all struggle with selfishness. How can you give more? How can you do more to honor Christ? How can you rearrange your priorities and your schedules so that Christ might be exalted and your life can include ministry to your kids and to those outside in the church and in the world? Grandparents. I see generations of grandparents today that think that once they have their children grown with kids that your responsibilities are over. Now, we know that's far from the truth. Because you have a second chance to be gospel-centered disciple-makers with your grandchildren. And that hadn't stopped. Because what you gave to your kids may not take root, and therefore you may have to undergird that ministry and give and display selfless love. They don't need your gifts. They need the gospel. They need to know the truth of Christ more than they need a laundry list of Christmas presents in a month and a half. That's what they need. They need to know about Jesus. They need to see Jesus in your life. And they need to hear about Jesus and all that He's come to do in this world to save sinners. Lastly, all my singles. I'm just going to isolate everybody tonight. If you're single in here, I know you're busy, but you got a lot of time on your hands, right? Not trying to stereotype, just saying, use that in a sacrificial way for the sake of ministry in this world. God has given single people, whether one day to be married or never married, He has given you the platform and the opportunity to go where a lot of us can't go.
You're the pioneers of missions. Many single men and women throughout the history of missions were the very ones that sacrificed for them, uh, themselves for the sake of taking the gospel to the nations. Let's all be continually committed to doing these things to display the divine love of God in our lives for the sake of God's glory. And lastly, and I'll close with this, these things may seem foreign to some of us. Maybe people listening online, maybe young people here this, this afternoon or evening, because God has not given you this divine love. You realize you're consumed with yourself, you're arrogant, you're prideful, you're impatient, you have no tact or respect. And the reason why is not because you haven't tried hard enough, it's because you are not born again and you need Jesus. Because when Jesus Christ invades your life and you are transformed, He will make you into His image and He will birth in you these things. Not perfectly, but consistently. And so if that's you today, I would ask you to repent and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these.